مساكم الله بالخير يعطيكم العافيه Welcome back to yet another episode of a podcast about nothing My episode today is an interesting one My guest is Saad Laysa He's a podcaster, a martial artist, a documentary producer And most notably a stand-up comedian Saad has made the leap of moving abroad He now resides in California And we had an amazing conversation I wanted to talk to Saad because He's one of the, those individuals who chose to relocate for their passions. And as as that is the theme of today's episode, uh, I'd like you to listen to this episode and give us your feedback, your comments. It's a different kind of episode. So let's dive right in. Happy listening. Saad, hayakallah. Allah hayak, mashkur, umagassart, and it's a pleasure and thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, it's a pleasure because you have such a different CV. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I don't do well with compliments. So if anything that you say that is a compliment, I'm just going to say thank you and we're going to move on. Thank you. Uh, I, I do have to say, this is going to be the first time where I'm hosting a host. So so, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how that goes. I, I, I was wondering who's going to end up asking all the questions. Uh, we don't have any rules here, so feel free to ask your questions. Hello. Um, so... I, I got a, a little research about you, like I cheated. I usually like going, yeah. uh, going through this blindly. I like to get to know best. Uh, yeah, and you, you, uh, let's start there. Saad, I believe, has a master's degree in law. A dispute resolution, yes. I, uh, so it's, it's, it's not a JD, like I can't practice being a lawyer, but mm-hmm. um, it's just a master's in conflict resolution, so I can practice being a mediator. How does being... Uh, somebody that credentialed into that kind of uh, academia and, and, and conflict, uh, sorry, dispute, uh, mm-hmm. also can get on stage and do stand-up comedy. You're coming off uh, hot right off the gate, Tiani. Has, uh, <laughs> the quest- I don't know if the question is how can someone with, with such you know, credentials or academics be a stand-up comedian, Yanni, and I'm not correcting your question. I'm just saying that I feel like and I know that's not your intention, but I feel like being a comedian is something that people separate from being an academic or like, you know, a scholar. And I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think a lot of, um, you know, successful comedians and professional comedians, whether it's like living or dead, mm-hmm. um, my favorite comic is George Carlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you, you know, you could argue that he's not a scholar and doesn't have a CV that is impressive, but he is a very, very educated or was because he's deceased yeah. and uh, he was a very educated man. Uh, Dave Chappelle is the same thing. Like, you know, um, he was raised by scholars and he was like, you know, very good in school and like, he's a writer, reader, and like a, constantly educating himself to talk about topics that we're discussing today. So I feel like going to law school, if anything added value um, mm-hmm. to my comedy career, because it, it made me realize what it takes to write something profound and I find it very useful, especially when I'm writing my sets. And I say that like two years later anymore. Mm. Now, when I started year two on, I realize now that uh, like when I write my sets, I write a thesis. And I'm, I'm not, no, no. And, and I'm not saying it like that. Because like, a lot of comedians that I work with, like write a joke, like, oh, like I, I'm on a podcast. What's funny about being on a podcast? He spilled water, blah, blah, blah. Like to me, it's more like, I don't care about that joke. I care about what is the, the conclusion, Araft? Mm-hmm. Um, what, am I, what am I heading you know, towards? And so like I see a problem, like my new, my new special that I'm going to do, 
in Kuwait and I'm going to film and release on YouTube again. Again, I mean like as a second special mm -hmm. is about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict wow. and conf conflict in general. So I take that umbrella mm -hmm. and then I see, okay, what is my conclusion? Why is that important to me? And then I see what stories or narratives in my life can, can I like insert and I just break it down. And so I feel like that's very much like uh, a very law uh, school approach to writing. It's like, what are you trying to say? What are your supporting arguments? And then from there, you, you know, I start to insert the punchlines. That's, that's freaking awesome, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you took the question and you gave an extremely valid answer in, in the best way possible. Thank you. And that's a great start to, to this thank podcast. You, thank you. Like, I'm very excited about this. Me too. Like, I, I loved the, the, the way you, you explained it. It's that I actually have something to say. It's not just a joke for me. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, and uh, and uh, like your, your whole set is, it's kind of sending a message. I have something to say that I built um, around a certain message. And I wanted to, in a way that, that kind of complements my background. I have a strong legal background. Like for yourself, uh, you have a legal background. And that, that's reflected in your comedy. And that's awesome. Thank you. Let's, you know, I, sorry. Yeah, Lala, I was just going to say something. It's, it's very interesting because I feel like, and I don't know if that's where you're headed because mm -hmm. I know when we spoke on the phone before yesterday and not before yesterday, like yesterday before the interview, mm -hmm. you said that I want to talk about what it's like being a Kuwaiti living abroad and like why yeah. comedy and it's not the conventional route. Yeah. And I think it goes hand in hand with the question you asked me like, what is it like for someone to go to law school and then decide to do comedy? Mm -hmm. And there's something I talked about in one of my episodes, the Sad Truth uh, podcast. I say like, I really feel like there's two ways to live life. Like mm -hmm. when it comes to like wanting to, to impact change or doing something worth no noticing. One, you devote yourself completely to that thing. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's something I've always envied pe any people who are able to decide that at an early age, or early state in their life, because it gives them a sense of purpose. Um, it gives them a sense of like, understanding who they are because you become what what you do you know in a way so if you're like a if you're like a host and you're constantly interviewing people you become a host like even in, like the way you think becomes oh i could interview that individual oh that would be a great story that's you know and you get better at questions and you know of course you could be a family man and a dad a father a boyfriend whatever but at the end of the day what you do constantly or a lot of ends up shaping who you are and um, what I was saying, the second route is if you don't devote yourself to something that is completely, you know, from an early age, like an athlete is a perfect example, right? Mm -hmm. My friends and I were talking about this yesterday. Athletes are blessed and also cursed because it's like your body, your vessel is everything that you need to take care of. It's your temple. But at the same time, if, you know, if you're someone who makes millions of dollars, right, playing for a successful team, and at the age of six, your father or mother was like, you know, you can do this, keep doing it. In a way, they gave you a gift because now as an adult, you're like, what I enjoy doing, what I'm passionate about became who I am, my moneymaker and my, you know, net for security. Mm -hmm. The other way is people, I guess, like us who are like raised in, in countries like Kuwait and brought up in Kuwait. Unfortunately, like athleticism is not considered a professional career yet. We're yeah. trying, but it's not. You can be playing for the Kuwaiti soccer team. You can be playing for clubs and you're still seen as, okay, that's a hobby. What do you really do? And which is what I also think your question came from subconsciously. I don't think you were trying to put down being a comic, but subconsciously, it's like, if you have a law background, why would you want to do something? Else? And I think people who 
you know, grow up in countries like Kuwait or even in, in the States or whatever, but come up in a family where education is very important. There are certain societal criteria that you have to meet. Grow up with a little bit of confusion because you will find a passion and then all of a sudden you'll feel like your parents are like, you know, soccer is really fun, but how about going to college? And so it's not a problem, but I think what we have to notice is that maybe all of these things that we picked up on, like going to law school, doing undergrad, uh, playing soccer, being, you know, training jujitsu can all be added tools to that when you find the thing you want to master or focus on or like dive into, now all of a sudden you can bring different areas of expertise and ways and perspectives of looking at things into that thing. And it could give you an edge. And that's what I feel I've come to, to terms with. I was like, okay, like I did a lot of different things before stand-up. That doesn't mean I should have been doing stand-up since I was 16. And, you know, thankfully stand-up is not a an area where if you didn't start at the age of nine, you're behind. It's okay. You know, some people work on stage presence for years. Some people work on writing for years. We all have different strengths, but I was like, all of the things that I did, I'm just going to put into stand up and see how it can, you know, give me an edge and give me a head start on what I want to master. If that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um... So... <laughs> You, 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 you jumped to the main point that I was trying to hit with asking yeah. you the last question, which is, um, it's what you're trained for and what you're passionate about. Right. I went to law school, but, uh, but I, I'm, I'm passionate about something else. I found my passion. I found myself and yeah. something that I love. And I wanted, uh, this is exactly one of the main, one, one of the many reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because you chose something that that is more to, uh, engaged towards you. And you did go to it full throttle. Uh, and we're going to try to hit on, on the process, moving to the States and opening for Maz Jibrani, mashallah, and doing yeah. all of that stuff. It's, it's the same song, the old song and dance, framing somebody just by what's written on them but, uh, on paper. Well, what's, what did they go to school for? Right. I went to school for something vastly different than what I've done most yeah. school for mass communication, but I worked as an interpreter for the National Assembly for a couple of years. And nice. now I where'd have you go to school? Great university. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Okay. Um, I got my degree in public relations and I never worked in it a day in my life. Yeah. Seems so, to be the, <laughs> the norm. Yeah. Um, I resonated a lot with, with, you being credentialed and you following a dream, a passion. Yeah. And not a lot of people, unfortunately, have that luxury. I would Correct. love it if somebody who hears you today gets that kick, gets that fire under them, um, that you don't have to necessarily just do what you think you have to do. If you're passionate right. about something, it's worth taking. What do you, what do right. you think about that? I think it's, it's beautiful what you just said. I think there's a key word that you said, it's a luxury to follow your dream. And I think I've been very fortunate to be in a situation that I can afford and say, okay, I'm leaving you know, financial security and a job and I'm going to pursue a dream. I think it's also important to say that it's also a luxury that I was able to afford going to law school because it not only gave me an opportunity to, to so initially I moved back to, so after graduating undergrad and I moved back to Kuwait, worked for a year, I decided to move back here because I was working on an automotive project. Nothing to do with stand-up, <laughs> nothing to do with entertainment. My, my passion for years was starting the first Middle Eastern or Gulf automotive company. And we got seed A of funding and we designed the vehicle. And, you know, I'm not wow. going to bore you with the details, 
But that's the reason I moved back to the States so I can find investors to push, you know, round two and be able to manufacture the vehicle. And I used law school as a way to stay in the United States um, for many reasons. One, I already graduated from, from that university. So it was easier for me to get back into the university that, I'm tra- <laughs> that I graduated from, unfortunately. Um, two, I wanted a program that didn't require a lot of time and I made a mistake. I was like, oh, law shouldn't be that difficult. It was a two-year program that I finished in one year. And the reason I rushed it was because it was so stressful. And I realized if I'm going to continue this for two years, I'm going to lose everything that I'm doing for the car company, et cetera, and like my well-being. And, but it was linguistic. I love language. I can't do math. I'm not someone, you know, that you can deal with, you talk accounting with or like finances. So language was easier for me. Like I can write essays, I can read fast. So I was like, okay, it shouldn't be that difficult. So you asked me the question is what do I think about, you know, pursuing the dream, right? Like what it's pursuing the passion. I think it's a luxury. And I think to be honest, it all comes down to a question is which pain are you willing to live with more? So for someone who has no opportunity to travel, no opportunity to get, you know, pay for their own education, no opportunity, like where they, they're at survival mode constantly, like in different countries, uh, places like, you know, in Kuwait, we're very fortunate most of the time. Um, but if I was someone who had to think about how I'm going to have lunch on the table tomorrow, mm-hmm. how my wife or kids are going to be able to afford clothes for you know, the next upcoming holiday, Ramadan, Christmas, whatever, mm-hmm. I doubt that their appetite for pursuing a dream is going to be the same because now they're thinking survival mode, like shelter, food, clothing. Um, however, there are cases where these people do that. And if you look at like, for example, like one of my favorite athletes, Cristiano Ronaldo, when he was really young, he came from nothing, but his yeah. parents realized we have nothing. So we have nothing to lose. Yeah. So, so instead of pushing him into going to school and, you know, let's be scholars, we have nothing to lose. And yeah. it worked out for him. Um, so I think it is a luxury. And I think following a, your passion is, is something that is very beautiful because it answers a lot of your questions. You know, yeah. like I think, I don't know about you, but I definitely had an identity crisis moving back to Kuwait and then moving back here. Who I am, what do I stand for? Uh, what are things that I enjoy? What, are, what if I fail at the automotive thing? Does that mean I'm a failure as an individual? Because I started to identify myself a lot with that project that when seed two of like, you know, round two of funding didn't happen, I was like crushed. And so I, I, I came to the conclusion of like passions are like emotions, you know, okay. you can come across that emotion. It can grow, develop. You can care for it, keep it. Uh, nurture it or you can get rid of it because you experience something else and i don't think passions are necessarily an indicator of oh i'm passionate about fishing so i want to be a fisherman period i think you can be passionate about fishing and soccer and stand-up and law and justice and a lot of different things but the beautiful thing about passion is i think you should use them as indicators try them out right Mm -hmm. like if you're passionate about soccer try playing soccer what happens when you play soccer how do you feel there, and then are you more realistic, idealistic? Are you someone who's like, no, I will make it professionally and, and amazing. But then it comes down to the question, what pain are you willing to live with? If you do pursue something, which the success rate is very low, are you going to think, what if I just stuck with the, the narrative of following society's rules? Am I going to feel like I'm a failure? Or will it hurt more to put that dream aside and that passion be like, ah, it's just a hobby. It's okay. But mm-hmm. later on in life, when you're 40, 50 or whenever, you're going to be like, damn it, I wish I, I can go back and, and do that. To me, that's the more painful answer, to think what if. 
So I love that analogy. I, I, I really love that. And what pain are you willing to live up? Right. And you, you took a profound concept <laughs> and, and made it very approachable, very realistic. And I think that's, that falls back to your linguistic background, to your, um, to your credentials. I, I do believe that for you to be a successful public speaker, before we, we go into comedy, for you to be somebody who talks so that people want to listen to you, Right. You do have to vocalize your words in a certain manner. Just did that beautifully. Like, I don't want your phrase to be just a regular phrase. I, I really want to highlight it. Thank you. We're going back to the thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Aziz, but I'm going to say this. It's, uh, it's, it's really cool what you're doing because it's, 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 I love podcasts. I love, you know, to be honest, before doing my own podcast, I didn't see the value of a podcast. Mm-hmm. I never listened to a podcast in my life. And then I did Legendary and I'm like, damn, like, it can, the message can go far, you know, and it's, um, and it's beautiful. And to, you know, doing it, whether you're doing it for reasons of getting better at speaking and listening and probing questions or impacting others, either way, they're all beautiful things that are going to help you grow and build connections with people that without the podcast, you might've never come across to meet. So at the very least, I'm grateful that we met. So thank you. You better get me a ticket for your special in Kuwait. For sure. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, uh, you gave me a great segue, and I think this falls back on you being an excellent host, mashallah. Uh, I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk to you about Legendary, and mm-hmm. I I know at least twenty people yeah. who've said I want to do a YouTube channel. Well, I wanted to do something with with communication, with media, with social media. You mm-hmm. put yourself out there, and mm-hmm. you took a hard medium, like for somebody who's young, to do some sort of documentary slash talk show. And I saw uh, two or three, ep- three episodes, I believe. I saw the one with, uh, right. I saw the one with you, success. Oh, the LMU, three questions for a better life or purposeful yeah. life. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was one of the earlier ones. And yeah. I saw the one with Wim Hof. Right. I didn't know Wim Hof. Yeah. But you, you took different, you took a similar approach. I'm not going to say a different approach. You highlighted the guest. It's like you wanted them to tell a story that they wouldn't have told in, in another place, well, in some, somewhere more formal. And what, why did you have that drive? What message were you trying to send? So Legendary started, so back to what I just told you, when I moved back to the States to pursue the automotive venture, after it didn't go through, I was faced with a lot of questions. I was like, who am I? Why is it that everything I plan on doing doesn't work out? I know that I don't want to do a nine to five anymore, like seven to three in Kuwait. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I stand for anymore. I've always been ambitious. I've always had energy. I've always done things, you know, wholeheartedly and like 150% in. But I was like, honestly, like on the verge of breaking down. And the reason is like, I really didn't know what's next for me. Like, it just felt like, okay, like I graduated. I'm about to finish law school. The car project didn't work. What's next? What do I stand for? What does it mean? what the hell am I supposed to do? Do Go back to Kuwait? Like, dude, like for a year in Kuwait, I wanted, I, I started working on a superfood cafe. I wanted to open a laundromat for a little while. I was thinking of, you know, going into a gym business. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Like, I quickly like started to conform. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just, it started to feel like I'm, I sold my soul in a way just to get certain comforts. Mm. And so, Legendary was a product of me searching for answers. 
I was reading a lot of self-help books. Like at the time I was staying at a friend's apartment when I first moved back to California, 2000 and I was staying at his place for six months. And I was literally, as he's reading a book a week that had to do with self-help. And it was so redundant because sometimes it's the same BS over and over, you know, like, and I just like was trying to look for an answer, like from Malcolm Gladwell to like Mastery by Robert Greene to like, you know, Magnus Walker's book on, you know, like it was how, you know, talk like Ted, how to like find your passion and then watching Ted talks. And I was like, this is crazy. And so I was like, why don't I just interview people in my life, ask them these questions and maybe people who have the same questions are going to find answers or solace in, in what I'm doing. And um, I knew nothing about camera or, you know, production or anything at all. And I had a cousin still do. He, he's not deceased. Like I'm like, <laughs> had a cousin at the time who was at New York Film Academy and he's wow. one of my best friends. So I called him and I was like, hey, listen, like, this is what I want to do. How do I do it? And he was like, well, you need cameras and depends how many angles and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, it's too technical. How about you just have me meet people who know what they're doing? Mm-hmm. And we set up interviews and, and we put a team together. And I had a friend at the time who was an artist from Bulgaria who our friendship inspired me to continue to push because he was going through a very rough time, you know? And his, his paint, you know, his, his paintings gave him solitude and comfort. And that could be a good interview. So we did an interview. It was like 20 or 30 minutes, like quick, one question after the other. We didn't use it. Then we filmed mm-hmm. another one a few weeks later because I was so concerned about how I sound. Do I sound smart? How's the lighting? Does he sound yeah. smart? Like all the BS that you don't have to worry about. The second time I was like, you know what? I'm out of the camera. I'm going to be behind the camera. You're going to sit. We're going to ask you a question. And we did that. And it got like 500 views the first week. And I got messages from people like, dude, this is cool. You know? And I was like, okay. And then we had like 100 subscribers, 200 subscribers. Then I interviewed my jiu-jitsu coach, Cobrinia, yeah. who was like at the time at the peak of his career and about to like win every major tournament in that year. So it's like the timing was perfect. The universal timing was perfect because he was like trending and everyone's like, is he going to do it? Is he going to win the fourth title in one year? No one has ever done it before. And I interviewed him. And there I learned a lot about editing and because it was a, such a difficult episode. There was a lot of background noise, whatever. Into technical stuff. And that did what? Like I think the first week, 15K views and then... Right now it's close to 100K or whatever. And, and the subscriber rate went up like crazy. And then the third episode was Alejandro Solomon, who was a good friend of mine, still is, and a mentor. And he's a successful YouTuber. So I called him like, listen, this is what I'm doing. I know it sounds like a lot, you know, like you may think it's like me, you know, leveraging. And he goes, it is you leveraging. And there's nothing wrong <laughs> with asking. Yeah. And I was like, can you be my third episode? He goes, I would love to come over to my house. Let's film it. And he promoted it. He put it on his website. He put it on his vlog. And that episode alone is close to a million views now alone. Mm-hmm. That, that one. And so to be honest, I don't know if what I did was the recipe of like the approach or it was knowing the right people or timing. But um, I think it's, this is how it came about. It was just an organic approach of me trying to figure out answers for myself through others. Because I learned two things. One, success is relative. Yeah. Right? Everyone has a different definition of success. So I can't compare myself to my jujitsu coach's idea of success. I can't compare my idea of success to my friend that's an artist. I can't compare my idea of success to Wim Hof's idea of success. True. We all have different definitions of success. And second, 
the common theme of everyone, all of them, is they just did it. They had something in mind and they went after it. And so that's why the motto of, of, of Legendary changed from narratives to inspire to legends do. Because although the goal of me starting the channel was to inspire you with narratives, the more important message is to just do. Whether it's a mistake or not, you're going to learn. Just do. Stop thinking, stop dwelling. So to go back to your question, a lot of people wanted to start YouTube channels, talk about starting YouTube channels, and they don't. The best advice is just do it. Start it. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. Because if you don't start today, you're missing on lessons you, can, you could have learned and leveraged from. So all you're doing is postponing growth. And that, to me, is completely stupid. Like, I don't see why someone wouldn't put themselves in the fire to learn if it's hot, how much they can handle what if they want to handle it or not, you know? And I don't mean stupid, like anyone who's nervous is stupid. Look, relax, I get it. But I'm saying, if you can sit with yourself and say, I could do it, but then you're acting stupid. Just do it. You know what I mean? I don't even know if stupid is a politically correct word nowadays. <laughs> but, um, and that's something that Alejandro Solomon told me. He said, sad, because like at the time I wanted to film 10 episodes and release them like a show, you know, intro and mm -hmm. highlights. And he's like, and I know you said, don't say F-bombs, but he said, said, if you film 10 episodes and you release them and they don't work out, it's going to be 10 FUs. <laughs> but if you do one and release it and you get 500 views and 300 thumbs down, that's one FU, you adjust, you fix, you move on. So how, you decide how, how, how hard you want to get hit. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that, I think I answered sah, your question. Uh, you gave an answer that, that had me thinking. Yeah, um, I could swear I, I know you because we resonate on a couple of. Yeah, I wanted to do the podcast and like I scoured and I talked to a couple of friends. I'm usually the guy behind the camera. I'm usually the guy that helps other guys do. Right. So I was like, I want to do this, and yeah. most of them were like, No, you, you're you're the serious type. I got typecasted as as the guy who talks serious. about politics or oh. I, I've been very much absent from social media. I'm, yeah. I don't know who people are. I don't know who's famous and who, who's not. Right. So I decided to put myself out there. Right. Worst thing possible. I, I just meet somebody interesting and I, I learn something new. You brought up a very, very good point. You just have to do it. Just do it. Right. If you right. want to do it and you keep talking about it and you constantly think, how should I do this? I need these cameras. I need this setup. A lot of people started with a phone. If, if your message is worth saying, you should just get out and say it. And I honestly exactly. do believe that. And, and, I, and I don't think we decide if our message is worth saying. I think the public decides. So either way, sitting and thinking about it is not going to help. You know? So like the most thing I was nervous about is like, why should I do Legendary? Why would someone listen to sad? You know, like who the F is sad? Like, why should I even tune in? But then I was like, well, maybe there's people just like me who have the same questions and that's all. And that's all that matters. And to some people it's like, oh, you're wasting your time. Good. I'm glad you have everything figured out for yourself and you know what you want to watch, who you want to listen to. And there are a lot of people who are like, no, this inspired me to do this, this and that. And that to me is enough for me to keep going. You know, it's, it's those few voices that reach and that tell you something that tell you you affected them or that you helped them somehow. Right. And that does leave a profound effect on us. So this is why I want to do that. I, I wanted somebody when I was down to help me with whatever. I wanted somebody to reach out. And this is you reaching out to you, helping them with answers. I, I want to <laughs> leverage to uh, to the sad truth. And I, yeah. I think I told you that well, that's one of my favorite podcast names. Thank you. 
died into sad truth. And when I listened to it, um, I listened to the first episode on your website and it was very much raw. And I, I think you prefaced it saying, this is going to be unedited. This is going to be right. as raw as possible. This, you're going to get me on a mic and talking. Right. And I think it's one of the best reflections uh, to sad living abroad. Right. It's not a gimmick. It's not sad, no. the comic. It's not legendary. It's, it's very much you. Right. How, how, how do you feel about being that exposed, being that open to the world? To be honest, I was the most nervous when I approached the sad truth more than starting to do stand-up or legendary. Mm-hmm. And the reason is, I feel like recently I've been wanting... How do I... I've been wanting to just live my truth completely unfiltered. However, it does come with a cost, especially in our society and culture. And I felt like doing the sad truth is going to push me to sometimes say things that are uncomfortable. Yeah. And when I say uncomfortable, I say it with, you know, the idea that maybe there's, you know, like we come from a culture where if you have family issues, they're not really discussed with friends. Um, If there's something that you disagree with or, you know, politically or religiously, then it's not really tolerated, you know? Yeah. And so when I did the sad truth, I was like, I'm nervous because one, everyone has seen legendary in the production value and they think of me as this well-polished, you know, he prepares, his guests are professionals. And now all of a sudden, right, right. And like, you're serious, just like you said, like they looked at you as someone who's serious. And then they also saw some of my comedy bits. So I'm like, that's also polished (laughs) because it's like, (laughs) I practice them, I write them. I only post the things that I think are going to do well. And now with the sad truth, I'm giving myself one shot, one hit of, of the record button, and then I'm, I'm, I'm ending the recording and then I'm uploading. And if I repeat, if I stutter, if I say something wrong, I have to teach myself to let it go. And that's really the motive of why I started doing it. I guarantee you that if I didn't do the sad truth today, like to this day, this interview wouldn't be flowing like this. I would be nervous. I'd be like, oh, Aziz, uh, uh, to answer your question, actually, uh, I would probably like sound like this guy that's on CNN. Like, I would be thinking about what I'm saying and how you're hearing what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right now, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just having a conversation. And, and I think... Yeah. Go ahead. And, and I think that's the, the best thing about the, this format. Yeah. It's, it's a conversation. We don't think about the record button. We don't think about the mics. Um, right. I find you interesting and I just want to talk to you and I want to get to know you. Exactly. Everything else is a byproduct. The people finding right. this as a show, that's an extra. Right. The whole thing right. is about us talking and, and that's right. amazing it's to a, me. Yeah, yeah. Because at the end of the day, storytelling and conversations is exactly how humans developed. Mm-hmm. So like, if you think of, of you know, even in early ages, like people told stories to learn things like firemen to this day after every, I read it in one of the, I forgot in which book, but to this day, every time they have a mission or like they accomplish a, a task, they meet a, at the fire station and they tell other firemen what they went through or firewomen. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this is what I went through. I broke the door. There was a cat. It was suffocating. I had to save the baby first. Why? Because then the next time they're in that situation, guess what? That fireman or firewoman is going to think, Oh, as he's told me that story, when there's a cat suffocating, that's what I should do. And now mm-hmm. I learned. And so I, I really feel like storytelling in general and speaking and, and, and conversations is really our like most basic fundamental initial way of evolving as a species. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and I don't want to go too deep and <laughs> take you on a different <laughs> tangent. But um, um, I want to I want to take this chance to segue to the stand up career. Segue. It's all uh, about segues. Go ahead. Uh, I, I personally am of the Seinfeld generation. I, I didn't... How old are you? Shouldn't Seinfeld generation. How old are you? I'm 28, but I grew up on Seinfeld. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You're not... This, it's, yeah. I, 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 I have four older brothers, so I just watch what they watch. They were probably Seinfeld generation. Yeah, my, my, yeah. my eldest brother, Mishari, is, is yeah. very much into Seinfeld, and that's all I watched growing up. Yeah. Hence the name, a podcast about nothing, a show about right. nothing in Seinfeld. Right, right. And... For for as long as I remember, I've always wanted to do stand-up, even though it's like I've done some crazy things in public speaking. I spoke everywhere from from the National Assembly to the UN. Wow. But going on stage in front of people, hoping to make them laugh, yeah. I don't think I can ever do that. N- not you even can. a day in my life. You can. You can. I, I disagree. I think I think anyone can do stand-up. I don't, I'm not saying you'd be successful. I'm just saying you can. Anyone can do stand-up. And a lot of times you'll hear people who are, you know, who are just doing public you know, um, speaking. Um, um, like people who do public speaking, who go out and speak in front of who have. Like, like keynotes, keynotes yeah. or whatever. They throw a joke in, you know, in there sometimes or like, True. and people laugh. And there's no different, you know, like there's no difference between doing a keynote that's funny or doing... Um, stand-up i just think with stand-up the audience has a higher expectation mm-hmm. of we're here to be entertained not educated yeah and so that's where i think the struggle comes in is like how can i entertain you and also educate you or in other words edutainment mm-hmm. like how can i give you education and entertainment but also have you be really entertained because <laughs> if it's just education then we're just you know having a speech how, so, how how did you start with it? What was your process? Like, I, I can imagine it being extremely scary with the first time you, you step on stage hoping to get somebody to laugh. Right. So the first time I did it, and um, man, I'm going to have to go through more life experiences because I feel like I'm just saying the same stories on your podcast, on my podcast. <laughs> so the first time I did it, I was in law school. So my last class, we had a South African professor. He was like in his 70s mm-hmm. who asked me, and it, was, it had to do with like criminal justice or something. And he was like, said, do you, do you see yourself becoming a criminal defense attorney? And I said, no. He said, well, if you don't want to continue, you should do stand-up. And I was like, what? And he's like, because it's the same thing. You know, you stand there and you convince the jury and it's storytelling. And at the time we went to court many times to do mediation or like speak. I had to explain to the, to the people that are there for their court appointments that mediation is successful because blah, blah, blah. And I really recommend it before going again in front of the judge because if the plaintiff, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, my class would always say sad should be the one that explains the rules. <laughs> and then we'd have like mock court stuff at school and he would laugh and he's like, you have a sense of humor even when you're serious. And I, and I don't think I'm a funny person. Like if you ask me, are you funny? I think I'm more serious than funny. But I think it's because I'm serious in times where people are expecting me not to be serious, it's funny. Does that make sense? So like, <laughs> like I'll say things that I think when other people won't say it because we're at court. Um, uh, so it's like more... Say, sh- yeah, can we say it's observational? Like It's, it's observational for yeah. sure. Like I'll say like, why are we all standing in a line? And they're like, uh, you know, like, yeah, why are we standing in a line? So it's like, <laughs> I, have, I have a problem with how society just moves forward on a day-to-day Mm-hmm. basis you know um 
so the first time, so he said that, and at the time my classmate, she was like a veteran from the US military. She was in her forties and she was like, and we did a lot of projects together. Like we would co-mediate and she's like, son, I, I really think you should try stand up. So anyways, fast forward. One time I was out with a friend and I saw this comedy place. And at the time I've only been to one comedy show, which was Dave Chappelle in Radio City, New York. Yeah. But it was a mistake. And that's a funny story in itself. I love um, that story. You heard it? On the yep. episode? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so I was walking and I told my friend, do you mind if I walked in and saw what an open mic night is? And I get, I get in and, and I see these comics that have two to three minutes to make people laugh. And they're, some of them were bombing so bad. Like I was like, oh my God, like I feel like I could write, so, and, you know, not in a cocky way. Just, I just said, I feel like if you gave me 15 minutes, I could at least write one good joke. So I went home and it was every Saturday. I went home and I spent a week writing a two to three minute set. And I went the following Saturday, I put my name in the bucket. You pay five bucks or whatever. You put your name in the bucket and they pull your name out of the bucket. And they're like, son, you're up in five. Sorry, I, you know, you said not to come. Um, I said, boop, you know. So I went into the green room and I, I started feeling butterflies and I got nervous. But the cool thing is I really didn't know anyone there except for my friend that told me you should try it. And I got on stage and I did two minutes, I think out of the three minutes, and every punchline landed. Like, no joke. Wow. It, I was so nervous. I still have the recording of me doing that. I was so nervous, moving around, holding the cable, taking a step back, not making eye contact, looking to the left. If you scroll down on my Instagram to April 2017, I did a music video with a Kanye West song, like, oh, first time debut doing stand-up. You'll see my body language. Like, it's horrendous. This is not what a comedian should do. But they were laughing so hard. And I remember the first, and I got off stage and this gentleman stood up and said, hey, man, you made me laugh. That was really good. I'm like, oh, thank you. And then I went the following Saturday and I did that for six months. And then I moved to a place closer to all the other comedy clubs just to go there every day, to do a mic every day. And wow. so I started doing a mic a day and then it became two mics a day, three mics a day, and then writing days, performing days, and, and then competitions and shows. And, and that's how it all started. That's a story. Like you, you, you were brave enough to put yourself in an uncomfortable situation. And I honestly believe that's how change starts. You put yourself in, in that, like as soon as you put your, your name in that bucket, you're done. You, you finish, I think, 60 to 70% of what's scary. Interesting. I never thought about it like that. Uh, yeah, that's true. I, I guess, yeah, it's all about putting your name in the bucket. That's true. I, I, I would agree. Because, like, you know, even in jiu-jitsu, they say a lot of people quit after getting their blue belt. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they realize how long it takes to get the blue belt. And then they're like, oh, damn, like, now I have to do another four to five years. And I have to be consistent. Or they get complacent. Like, you know, at least I got out of the beginner's level. And I think every day you put your name in the bucket and everything. It's not mm -hmm. about, you know, like you can wake up every day and decide to waste it or, or utilize it and take advantage of it. And I think every day you go to jujitsu, you step on the mat is another day you saying, today I'm a white belt again. I'm going to learn something and mm -hmm. I'm just going to continue being a white belt. And same thing with stand up. Every time, like I I'm telling you this based on experience, the three years that I've had, every joke feels like the first time all over again. So every new joke I write, I get on stage. When, I, when it gets to saying that joke, it's like day one all over again. Because right now I have no idea how you're going to react to this. And if the reaction isn't what I expect, then is it because of the room? Did I say it too fast? Is timing the problem? Should I change a word? Should I wait and do it again later? Is it where I placed it in my set? Is it because it came after a serious joke or a dark joke? So every time you write something new and you stand on that stage or every day, you step on that mat every day you step into the office is a new day for you to learn something 
and risk something, mm-hmm. you know? So yeah, I have to agree with what you said. Uh, <laughs> but like when you said every joke landed, I have to ask how, how does an American audience Mm. Um, approach a Kuwaiti comic does the cultures um, interfere is it a very um, local set do you make it more geared geared towards the Americans what what was the story that's probably the best question I've been asked when it comes to doing stand-up so far yeah no it's really good because a lot of people just focus on the fear of, of stage fright writing and and I think that's the best question I've been asked because being a Kuwaiti and an Arab doing the show in Kuwait, unconventionally Arab, I realized that, okay, not everything is going to work there. Mm-hmm. And I had to like reverse engineer my whole set. And I had yeah. to go like, oh, wait, wait, wait. We like sarcasm. Wait, wait, wait. You know, like small insinuations of this, this and that and marriage problems might work. And, and so, yeah, when I wrote the first set, I wrote it for an American audience. And, um, you know, some comedians say you never write for the audience. You write what comes from the heart and the audience is, they appeal to you. Or like they come, you know, they, they gravitate towards the content that they like. But I think that's true. Maybe if you're just like in one country and you're American and mm. you just want to be liberal or conservative. I don't know if being bi-coastal and like having two cultures and the understanding of language, you know, on a fluent level and culture and what is funny to them. Mm-hmm. I'd see that as an advantage. Like why not write to appeal to more people? Like Kevin Hart is a great 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 success story in stand-up his stand-up is accepted by everyone everyone whether you're black white jewish muslim a racist not a racist maybe if you're racist because he's black (laughs) you're like rejecting some of the stuff he's saying but but his his and also you could be a racist black person i'm not so i'm assuming that racist is white unfortunately we live in that kind of where white people have the short end of the stick um but what I'm saying is like his comedy is accepted by everyone because he talks about very simple ideas, family issues, my kids, my wife, my old father. We all have that. We all are going to have kids. We all have had kids. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. we all can relate. It's relatable. And so a comedian, if your objective is to make people laugh, then relating is the number one component to making them laugh. People aren't going to laugh at stuff they don't understand True. or relate to. And second of all, if I'm trying to educate, then that means I have to also think about the issues that I'm, like I'm standing in front of a thousand people that are from Kuwait. I'm not going to talk about the NRA for 15 minutes. <laughs> you know, I'm going to talk about Al-Majlis or things that they can relate to and things that I can influence change or impact change. And that maybe because I consider myself as a conscious comedian, a woke comic, or I hate the word woke, but you get my point. I, I get your point. Then I have to appeal and I have to write in a way that they will understand. And so, yeah, the first that I did was for the American audience. And I even remember asking people like, do people in Santa Monica know about this? And, you know, and I remember like I got on stage and I saw a lot of the people that were sitting there at the time were over 35. And my first joke was about tax money and the Iraqi invasion in 91. (laughs) And the reason it worked was because they were all part of that time. They grew up during that war. And I make that same joke sometimes on a stage where people are like in their 20s or like early 20s, where at the time when 1990, the Gulf War happened, it really didn't affect them. So they don't really relate to it. They don't get it. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess that was your question, Sai. Yeah. And you gave a very realistic answer. Uh, like in translation studies, um, we usually say there are two types of fluency. You have your language fluency, which is the basic uh, common known 
I know Arabic, I know English, and there's cultural fluence. You're fluent in the culture, like things that are specific towards a certain place or certain people. Right. And you having uh, uh, both cultures, you're, you're being fluent in the Kuwaiti culture and the American culture, I believe, really works in strengthening your own routine. Right. And like that's that's something extra that you have. It's not a cop out for you to make an American uh, skewed show. It's right. something you can do. It's something that's special about Saad rather than a cop out, let's say. Right, right. And I think you should utilize all, all the tools that you have. And you, you do it very well, mashallah. Thank you. I, I mean, Tom Segura did a special on Netflix in English and then he mm -hmm. did a special in Spanish. I don't mm -hmm. understand Spanish fluently, but I guarantee you mm -hmm. that when he did the punchlines, they were altered and, and tweaked to appeal to cultural fluency, like of you course. said. Of course, of so, course. Yeah. Like imagine uh, explaining to American culture uh, anything that happens in Ramadan. Right. Like any problem, any story that would, it's, it's, it's very different. It's it, like you can't relate it to Christmas, for example, because they're, they're vastly different. Um, how but, are you? Yeah, go ahead. But, no, no, I was just going to say it's interesting because like now when I write, I write in parallel voices. Mm -hmm. So like that's why my, my special is called Unconventionally Arab because to some Arabs, I'm not very Arab because I've lived here for 10 years. And to mm -hmm. Americans, I'm still very Arab because I've only lived here for 10 years. <laughs> so it's like it's the, same, <laughs> it's the same problem. So now when I write a special or I write a joke or whatever, I'm like, okay, like four wives. What's the equivalent of four wives, you know? or premarital sex, Mormons. Okay, cool. Like there are things that they would identify with and you can make it funny. Mm -hmm. So if like I was going to talk about Ramadan and fasting, you know, so Christians fast and mm. they have fasting. And so like you have to find the, the common elements. between. Yeah. Um, and that's when I think it's, it becomes relatable because you say in America, you do this in Kuwait, we do that. And mm -hmm. the more you do this, they're like, oh, that's true. We do this funny. Why don't we do it their way? And you know, and then you just start to share a story and it becomes understood. Um, how, how difficult was it to relocate to the States? How were you received there? Like, I, I, I know, a, not, a, not a couple, I know several Arabs in the United States. I just don't yeah. know many Kuwaitis who relocated to the United States. Well, Aziz, are you asking the question based on like, how was I accepted by the American people or what was it like for an Arab or what should um, be? Basically integrating to a society that's very different. You're, I'm not just talking about um, like your neighbors um, in your apartment or house. I'm talking about you being a part of the comic scene. You being... Um, uh, in the comedy scene, it's interesting because there's cliques for sure. Mm -hmm. Like in comedy, it, it felt like little gangs. And even though we're all one, but like, honestly, there was like the white comics all booked each other for shows, mm -hmm. especially if you're white and Jewish. Then there was like the black comedians. They all hung out together. They did their thing. They wrote together. They helped each other. Unfortunately, there's no Arab comic scene. Mm -hmm. There's Arabs that grew up in America who don't like Arabs, I would say, that are, are fluent in Arabic because they feel like there's a disadvantage because they speak, my parents say, when they were in Egypt. And then mm -hmm. you get on stage, you're like, no, no. When I was in Egypt, <laughs> you see, there's, there's stronger conviction when yeah. something happened to you than when it happens to someone that told you something. Already there's a separation. So the Arab comics that I met here who were American Arabs mm -hmm. weren't welcoming and supportive. That's they were, I know, they were like, oh, where are you from? Kuwait? Oh, okay, cool. How long have you been here? 10 years? Okay, how long have you been to Yeah, you'll get there. And then they'll like hit up their other friend because they didn't want someone 
the, there was a brand they were going for, you know, mm. and they didn't, and we're very little. I think there's like four or five of us. And I'm the only one that is still non-American that is Arab that's trying to pursue stand-up here. And, um, and I just became this lone wolf situation in stand-up. I show up, I do my show, I leave. You know, I have a fan base, I have a group of supporters, they come. I go to an open mic. Before I was like, hi, nice to meet you, blah, blah, blah. Now I'm like, no, it's, uh, hi, my name's Sad. Cool, whatever. You want to book me for my set? I appreciate it. I'll book you once I produce a show. Other than that, we're not going to sit and chit chat for hours and compare where we are in our journey. I don't have time for that. Anymore. That's unfortunate. Like I honestly yeah. believe when you're a successful person, when you've yeah. achieved something in your life, I don't want to say it's your responsibility, but it's a great thing that you do is you extend a hand to someone else. Right. And making like the world is, is hard enough to have animosity within a, a small group of people. Right. And this, I, I really do commend you. Like, uh, it's not easy, yet you're still following your passion. And, and that's awesome. We did, you did an amazing job with stand-up. And I think it's, it's one of those stories that 10 years from now, um, I'll look back to this podcast and I'll be like, hmm, sad. Yeah, I saw him on the Tonight Show. I have a podcast <laughs> of the guy. Yeah, and um, hopefully after that tonight show we'll do another episode. So I'll I'll hold you to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hold me to it. Because I don't believe in 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 just letting leaving things behind. Listen, at the end of the day, it's it's there's beauty in 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 shining light on someone's story because you kind of see value in it before everyone else sees value in it. And so I think if and when, not if, I do the tonight show and I have my own TV show and I do a few specials with networks why should it be any different that you text me and say, Hey, let's jump on a podcast. Mm -hmm. So I don't, I don't see why it would be different, you know? So that's uh, just me. And hopefully I, I stay the same. I, I believe we're going to see that day pretty damn soon. Yeah. Um, another part yeah. of your life is jujitsu. Mm -hmm. Like I, I had a, a late friend, who was uh, very big into Brazilian jujitsu and BJJ gave him uh, a calling. He became very disciplined. He became uh, very organized. It right. bled into his, his daily life, into his philosophy. Mm. How do you think jiu-jitsu, how do you think uh, Cabrinha affected you personally, or affected your mentality towards pursuing something? Jiu-jitsu taught me firsthand through experience that life is a constant evolution and that failure and tapping and saying, let's start over and accepting something as a loss and seeing it as a lesson is essential to moving forward and growing. Before jujitsu, my ego was so sensitive to anything that wasn't in line with the image I wanted to see myself in. But to get there, put on a white belt as a 24 year old at the time and think that you're strong enough and get your butt handed to you by a 14 year old or let alone a woman that you think you can like manhandle it puts things in perspective as is it's yeah. um, not only puts things in perspective, but it's like, Hey, wake up. You know, the world technique is something a learning curve is something respect it, respect the game, respect mm -hmm. the time that it takes. Um, and have, you know, like as is like, I was spoiled before. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like before 2016, I, I was like, I'm going to make a car company. I can do anything. I took a few kickboxing classes. Like there's this ego pride that we have even growing up in our culture. 
And doing jujitsu is like sad. If you want to be good at anything, not let, let like mediocrely like good, more good. Just if you want to be like good, but also mediocre, you have to accept failure and you have to come to class and, and get your butt handed to you by kids and, and things that might hurt your ego more than anything. And you have to learn. And that's when I was like, dude, that same thing applies to legendary. My first episode wasn't as good as the second, third, fourth, five. And then until we got to Wim Hof and that's life. And that's why you have to start somewhere and you have to just do it. And I, I think jujitsu put a lot of life lessons in perspective. Like for example, Cobrini always says, when you have a problem, we look at the problem. Like if I'm rolling with someone and my arm is trapped, I'm not thinking about my foot, his head, his neck. I'm thinking about the arm that's trapped. How do I solve it? One thing at a time. Because if I try to solve all the things at the same time, that's how you get caught. Because you're thinking about everything. You're not focused on the biggest threat. And if you can't solve it and you get caught, you tap and you say, let's start over. And it's almost like, you know, metaphorically, it's like fall down seven, stand up eight. It's yeah. like, it doesn't matter how many times you fall. It matters how many times you keep standing up, keep moving forward and have the ability to learn and tell your partner, hey, good job on catching me. That was really cool. I, I salute that move. That was really awesome. You know, how can I be better? Because iron sharpens iron. And if I'm not rolling with people that are better than me, if I'm not getting on stage on an open mic with, with comedians that are making me feel nervous because damn, they're really good. I don't want to be the best in the room. I want to be the worst in the room. Do you see what I'm saying? And jujitsu made me realize that in, in application, Mu theory. Theoretically, we can all re read self-help books and watch TED Talks and be like, you know what? You know, that, that speaker made a valid point. I should be more loving and, you know, like, whatever. Until you actually understand that for you to grow, you actually do have to come from a place of love and a place where failure is a necessity to move forward. And that's why I did an episode where, like, failure is just another step forward. It's not a step back. Perspectively, it's, not, it's impossible for failure to be a step back. Because if, if it hinders anything, it's, it's really making you face yourself. Are you going to give up? And if you're going to give up, trust me, you're doing yourself and society a favor. Well, like, you know, and, or not, am I going to move forward? And if failure helps you move forward, then why is it a step back? That, that takes a lot of discipline, though. Like that philosophy, that, that, it takes a lifetime to understand that philosophy and, and articulate it. And you took something that's very physical, like jujitsu, and you, you took it to heart and you, you made that a part of you. Yeah. And I think you just summarized a, a philosophy that would get results done. If you fail at something, you either give up or you brush the dirt off and, and you keep going. If it's something that you love, if it's something that comes out of love, it's worth doing. It's worth getting your butt, your butt handed to you. The simplest way to put it is if you don't sacrifice for what you want, what you want becomes the sacrifice in everything. In love, in success, in relationships, in, in business. What is it that you want? You know, and jujitsu not only helped me become fit and gave me a sense of purpose and confidence it also helped introduce me to some of my best friends. It introduced me to various cultures. It changed my perspective on people. It changed my perspective on strength, on wisdom, on patience. It changed my, dude, jujitsu is the reason I, I kind of moved back to California to seek funding, honestly. Like I could have just seeked funding from Kuwait, but I'm like, in Kuwait, I don't have the same jujitsu um, training. I want to be back where the, you know, the best of the best are. And if, that, if, if it wasn't for jujitsu, I wouldn't have had the best friends that were there for me. And I wouldn't have had 
the opportunity to find stand-up because I wouldn't have come here and went to law school. So in a way, because of jujitsu, I kept coming back to find myself and redefine myself constantly. And whenever I went through something like hard or depressing, jujitsu was always there because jujitsu, the beauty of it, you know, you can go on a run, you can get a text message, you can be at the gym and you can get distracted or have a thought or see someone. But in jujitsu, when you're fighting, when you're rolling, you can't think of anything else. You have to be in the moment. You take it one and, problem at a time. Right. And what's more therapeutic than being present? And that's something we don't do. So in jujitsu, we leave our phones in the locker room, we train, and it's one person after the other. There's no time to chit chat. We're not like, hey, how are you? How's your day? It's like roll, 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 roll. And so like I'm completely present. I'm in tune with my body, with my breathing. And when I leave, all of a sudden the weight of the world is a little lighter. And it's like, how can I turn my back to something that gave me hope and and all these life lessons. And to me, that's why I say jujitsu is the truth. Not only the truth in martial arts, because I really believe that the truest forms of martial arts are like jujitsu and kickboxing, or more, but also jujitsu is the truth in terms of understanding life and all the principles of life in just one, one sport. I see, I see a philosophy of, of jujitsu. So mm-hmm. I, I have to ask, who's Cabrinha to you? Like you mentioned he's a coach. But right. Who, is who Cabrinha your... is to me? Yeah. Cobrinha is, is a friend, mentor, and, and the first person that I came to witness firsthand the amount of discipline it takes to be a master at something. So the first person that touched my heart in saying, damn, this guy outworks everyone, even when he's at the peak of his career. And I remember it because I transferred schools from one jiu-jitsu academy to another, and I saw him there 10, 11 hours a day. Not only teaching classes, first one at the gym, last one out, cleans the mats, a father, role model for his son, great husband, diligent, takes time. If you have a question, answers the question, make sure you don't leave without your question completely being answered. Not only did he teach six to seven classes a day, but he would train three to four hours in between, like full on training, sweat, and teach UFC fighters and his life. And then... When I interviewed him, I was like, wow, so you really just gave jujitsu everything. And he looked at me and said, sad, I wake up, put on a gi. Before I go to bed, I take off a gi. And, there's, and, and my wife had to understand that for me to give my son an opportunity to come to America and live here, for us to have the money to be able to do what we want to do, I have to be not great at it. I have to be the best. Wow. And if I'm not the best, then I'm not the best husband. I'm not the best father. I'm not the best because I can no longer provide. And now I feel like a failure. And if I can't provide, then how am I supposed to be happy? Because provide, you know, being in service of others and being there for people that you love is a source of happiness too. And that also is something that we often mistake. It's like when someone is going to become a master of something, are the people around him supposed to support him because it makes him happy. And in return, he's able to share that happiness with you. Or are we going to think of him as selfish? And I think that's something that is cultural in our culture. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like balance is very important. You go to work, but also be at lunch with your family. Also, you know, go out with the like every day. There's everyone requires a lot of time. And the moment you start to devote your time to one thing, they're like, ah, oh, he's selfish. He's that. But what if in return, I'm becoming selfish to eventually become selfless and provide and, and have all these beautiful stories to tell and all this inspiration to share. So I, I can't see someone like Cobrini as selfish because at the gym, he touches all our hearts and all our hearts are touched to go home and touch other people's hearts. And so because I'm 
able to be with someone who's such a role model. I'm not just saying that because he's my coach. I've had coaches before who did not inspire me half the amount that Cabrini inspired me. The guy is disciplined like crazy. And to see that discipline and then compare it to my favorite book, Mastery by Robert Greene, and think of all the stories he shared, now I understand what Mozart was, what, what would have been like, what Steve Jobs could have been like. We can see movies and be like, oh my God, he's like narcissistic. And No, no, no. The guy breathes discipline. Like he's what, 40 now, 39? And he trains like he's 18 and he's not even competing anymore. So why are you training? What, what do you have to prove? You, you did everything. And he says, because I don't want to die. I want to live forever. I want my legacy to keep. He's not so done someone, doing. He's not, he's done, not doing. done. So, so yeah, that, that's who Cobrini is to me. Someone who said, who gave me the courage subconsciously to say, it's time to leave Kuwait. It's time to go after what I want. And you know what? To this day, I don't give what I love 100%. I'm still trying to get to his. I still fall short. I still slide into comfort, you know, pockets. I still am afraid to sacrifice fully for certain and I want that to stop. And that's why I did the sad truth. Because I really want to just become everything I preach. I honestly see a lot of what you just said. A lot of the philosophy yeah. you just said in you. Uh-huh. And, and this is me having the first real conversation with you. Yeah. Um, I, the, my favorite um, medium or my favorite show that you've produced has to be the sad truth. Because I'm, I'm listening to a human. Yeah. When you did Legend Diary... It's extremely produced. It's very well produced. It's, yeah. it's something that, that has a place on YouTube as an actual show. Right. Because that was more towards the guest than towards sad. Right. You were doing your role as a host, but in the sad truth, sad. You're right. not the comic on stage. No. You're not the guy who moved to do his master's in law. You're not the uh, jujitsu uh, master or the jujitsu student. You're a guy who wants to share his story for whoever's listening, for whatever reason, if you need to hear something, if you need a hand, if you need, I am sad. And this is, and that's why it's my favorite out of. uh, Thank you. I love how we started talking about comedy and we reached towards uh, philosophy. Yeah. And I think that falls to, towards the, the notion that you know what you're talking about. Your comedy is not slapstick comedy. It's not, um, basic whatever recycled jokes or whatever recycled materials that you might get, you actually mm-hmm. put in the thought to what you say, whether that's on stage or in a podcast. And I think you have a journey. I think you've seen a lot in your journey. I think you've experienced a lot in your journey. And that's shaped the person that you are. I don't think you're the spoiled kid out of Kuwait who just moved to, uh, to California. I was. Money. I was spoiled. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that it, that changed, yes. I see, I see the battle scars in you. Like when you talk, um, yeah. there's passion. Thank you. There is passion and there's a lot of anger too. <laughs> uh, anger is very good if you know how to challenge it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, thanks to just I feel like I would have been a very different person. Um, I, I, I wanted to highlight jujitsu. Yeah. Like if, if somebody is listening to this show, like hearing yeah. the introduction that I'll record afterwards, yeah, and they'll hear that this is an interview with a comic, a Kuwaiti comic living abroad, and reaching to this point, reaching to a more human side. Right. I think I think I I don't I don't think I can give you a better introduction than when you were talking about jujitsu and when you were talking about Cabrinha. <laughs> um, there's in 
philosophy, when like we're talking about the philosophy, I think uh, the last thing on our docket, we live in in a messy world, let's say right mm-hmm. now, where social media has made it has made a, a cancel culture. If I don't like what you say, then everybody yeah. shouldn't like you and I will attack you fiercely. Uh, right. Uh, the, the whole political correctness. Mm. And as as a comic, um, as an Arab comic especially, talking about politics, talking about Palestine, for example, mm-hmm. how do you navigate all of that? How do you give your all as a comic, give, some, give a message, mm-hmm. but walking on the lines of not offending people? I don't. I don't walk in lines where I don't offend people. I offend people daily. I offend people in my life, personally, <laughs> on a daily basis. And um, I, I am not going to change. Listen, I'm not proud of offending others. I'm, so mm-hmm. your question is like, how am I going to navigate PC culture and talking yeah. about Palestine and all of yeah. that? At the end of the day, it's my truth, mm-hmm. right? And I think there's a responsibility when you are aware of your truth and aware of your message to consider, to weigh it out in anything. It's, it, listen, if you live every day and you're like, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a moral compass, so mm-hmm. there's like a, a moral compass to anything. So like if I wake up one day and I'm racist and I start saying racist comments and I'm, I'm, I'm sharing hate speech, mm-hmm. then yeah, it's offensive and maybe I should see a therapist and regulate what I'm saying and understand where all this hate's coming from because I don't believe we're naturally hateful, I think we're inherently loving and we learn to hate. That's my two cents on that matter. But being a comedian and talking about Palestine or political issues or you know, making jokes that might offend people, it just comes with the territory, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm a comedian or not, I'm gonna have an opinion that's gonna offend someone at some point. And if it does offend them because it's true or I'm correct in that argument, then so be it. And if it offends them and I'm incorrect, then I would hope that someone can reach out to me and say, hey, I've been offended. The reason I think you're incorrect or you made a false statement is because of that. And I should have the ability to say, thank you. Let me review what I said and be able to say, actually, I do have a change of heart or change of opinion. I do see what you're saying. And I think that's the healthy way of living life. I think PC culture and canceled culture is not beneficial because all it's doing is helping us mask and filter some things that when Trump is president, come out like crazy. And so now we see someone in leadership who all he said was like, I can make a statement that's crazy. And now all of a sudden, all these people are racist. All these people are able to say things that they would have never said before he was president. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that racism didn't exist when PC culture was strong? No, it just means that we were just so afraid of sharing opinion because we didn't our businesses to be affected. We didn't want our careers to end. And I think it's not a good thing to, to, to try to silence someone because all you're doing with speech restrictions in general, whether, whether it's PC culture or not, is you are concealing fear. And if you conceal fear, there's no benefit to anyone because the racist is afraid to say his racist comment, but he's not, not racist anymore. Just hiding himself, hiding right? the truth. The homophobe isn't making a... Uh, not making a gay joke because he doesn't, he doesn't think that it's okay. He, he's still homophobic. Mm-hmm. So I think when a comedian gets on stage and of course jokes within his context, that's mm-hmm. also important like, I'm not going to go out there and talk about issues uh, in the Indian financial system and 
why Kashmir should have been, like, it's not my place. I didn't experience it. I'm not affected by it. I might make a comparison. I might use a metaphor. I might set an example, but it's not my place. It's not my fight. But in my context, I should be able to say anything that is within my experience and my, my um, upbringing or, or um, I lost my chain of thought, Aziz, I'm sorry. Um, um, give me a second. I, I, it's, is your point towards comedy or towards your discourse yeah. that cancel culture and PC culture have been um, militarized in a way where if I don't disagree with your valid point, uh, rather if I don't agree with your, with your very much valid point that comes from within your culture, from your heritage, then you, 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 I, you shouldn't have a voice whatsoever, even if your point is valid. Yeah, so basically I remembered what I was going to say. Being, so for example... I used to use the word gay to describe things that were not cool, okay? Having gay friends and people in my life that were very close to gay people, I learned how that could be offensive. I wasn't aware of that. I didn't understand it because I was brought up to say that word in Arabic and in English Mm -hmm. as something that is weird or different. Now I have a choice. Do I stop saying that word as an adjective or not? Mm -hmm. I decided to stop using it as an adjective even though I won't understand it exactly like someone who is gay. It's impossible because I'm not, I'm not gay. So, but I understand how it makes them feel. I understand that I could choose other words and I understand that there's a responsibility and it could help not encourage other people in using that word. And that is for the better of the group. Yeah. However, if I do say something like, you know, I get on stage and I say, my gay friend said that and that's how he said it. Or like if I, say something that's funny and a lot of people laugh and some people get offended, but I know my context, context and my intention is mm-hmm. not to put down someone that is gay yeah, yeah, yeah. or it's not hateful, then I'm not going to sit and be like, oh my God, like how did three <laughs> out of 10 people get so offended and what am I supposed to do and should I apologize and walk on eggshells? Because now it's no longer healthy. Like I'm not, it's, it's, it's not normal. We should be able to joke and, and have conversations that are based, you know, like, Language is, is words, صح? but it's also words with intention and context. Yeah. So what I hate about PC culture is a lot of times they take words without context, without intention, without mm-hmm. knowing who the person is and what point is he speaking from and making a decision. And that's where I, I say like, it's crazy. But I, under, I don't think that having the power to cancel someone or like sitting there and thinking I have to walk on eggshells is healthy for anyone. I should be able to discuss something, be corrected if I'm wrong, and, you know, so long as it's not inducing hate or promoting or affecting the freedom of another group of people, right? Uh, true. I, That's I, what I, I think. And, I, I, and, and maybe there's a lot more for me to learn in that area. But, you know, that's, what I'm, that's where I'm at today. Tomorrow I might have a conversation with someone and learn a lot more and be able to give you a better answer. But I feel like as a comedian, especially with the Palestinian topic, right? Because mm-hmm. my mother is Palestinian. Mm-hmm. And... Growing up, we didn't discuss this topic at home. It's not like I grew up with hate towards like Israel or Zionism. Like I didn't. Yeah. I, I grew up with the same idea of any Arab. Like Israel shouldn't exist. Okay. Mm-hmm. But why and all of that? My mom didn't want to induce hate. She never talked about it like that. But yeah. growing up, learning, being educated, being aware, I realize now that the Palestinians are facing an issue. If you are pro-Palestine for any reason, you're canceled. Ca- there's, a, there's a wave of force, whether it's, fr- trust me, like you, I lost, I posted a few things on Instagram just about, 
you know, the, the, what's happening now in Palestine and the West Bank. And I lost like 17 followers. Half of them were very good friends of mine that Damn. were of Jewish descent or grew up in Israel or had people in the military. And they didn't even care to say, let's have a conversation or I can understand where you're coming from. And, and that's what I was also going to say. Like sometimes being, because in their head, they're like the new world order, the liberals and stuff. Sometimes when you're extremely liberal, you end up being conservative. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like you shouldn't be an extremist on anything. If, you, if you're preaching uh, inclusion, then you should also include, include different point of views. Uh, the Palestinian. Of course. Uh, of course. Like, uh, I remember in one of my missions where we went to uh, basically one of uh, the big multinational assemblies and my boss back then was talking about the Palestinian issue and the whole Zionist party occupying Palestine. Right. The embassy back there literally told us you might get death threats. Death threats. threats. I can't talk today. And we had a security detail with us the whole time. Yeah. If, if you're preaching inclusion and if you, if you talk about um, having everybody ha with their rights and love and whatnot, that includes Palestinians. That includes everybody. Right. You can't include everybody and ex exclude one, one nation or one people. That in itself is... Right. right. And like you're, you're not talking, like you said, about the whole issue with Kashmir. You're talking about something that hits home. Yeah. The Palestinian issue is part of you, whether it's part of every, it's part of everybody, honestly, but Arabs uh, in particular, right. Muslims in particular, we, we have a, a, a holy, holy ground over there that we, we would love to go worship there. But plus the whole diaspora issue and the decades yeah. upon decades of subjugation against Palestinians just because they're Palestinian, right. preaching inclusion, then include Right, exactly. Beautiful. Very well said. I, I would love to see your show in LA. I would, I would happily be there talking yeah. about Palestine and I would happily show my support in LA. Yeah. And I'm definitely going to come uh, to your show in Kuwait. And Thank you. I, I really think more and more young people should speak out about these difficult topics. Right. Because you're young today, but you're old tomorrow. You're going to be the person who leads one. Let alone live all tomorrow. I, I might die tomorrow. True. And in and, and, and one of my episodes, I talk about how death is the number one motivation for me to anything I want in life. It's not an end. It's, it's, it's a reminder that my time here is limited. And so if I die tomorrow and I can do a special where I talk about the Palestinian-Israeli topic and I, you know, lighten, you know, the mood a little bit for some people that are struggling with it and also offer a solution, even though it's funny, but kind of like, listen, I'm going to tell you this. I never thought I was so political until I started doing stand-up. It's so interesting. Like I never did. I never gave a damn about any political issue. And then I started doing stand-up and I realized like all my writing is political. <laughs> and I was like, why? It's because I, I realized like, you know, I grew up in a family that had a very different upbringing. Like my parents were divorced. I was with my mom during the week with my dad on weekends. Their lives were completely different, black and white, opposites, very different. And I, I saw very different forms of injustice towards expats and immigrants in Kuwait because my mother is considered an immigrant mm -hmm. and I was angry, but I didn't know what to do about it. And so like, I'm not just talking about Israel and Palestine. I'm, when I talk about Israel and Palestine or when there's like a movement like Black Lives Matter here, mm -hmm. it's not only solving the issue for black people in America. It's also inspiring other people that are going through injustice to speak up. True. Right. Yeah. But I can only speak from my experience and what I feel I have the right to talk about. Um, 
And so I think in general, you know, I think the future, hopefully, and I'm not a very hopeful person, I like to believe in action stuff. I think the future is bright. I think the new generations are more aware. I think as the older people that are racist and have very like rigid traditions pass on, the future of this world can be more in harmony and, and you know, nationalism will decrease and these differences will be seen as similarities. And, you know, I, I'm the most one to advocate culture and differences, but at the same time, to use them as bridges, not walls. That's all I'll say about that. That's a very political uh, part of this podcast. That's the point of this podcast. Right. It's talking about everything and nothing. Um, you're a comic, but you're not just a comic. You're not defined by one thing. You are a collection of your past experiences. You are a collection of different people who influenced your life. Right. One of the craziest things I've seen in cancel culture mm-hmm. is they... I love what you just said, by the way. I love mm-hmm. what you just said. You're not just a comic, you're a collection of your past, your experiences, everything. Exactly. Everyone in life is not just something. Exactly. And I hate it when I see people attacking a celebrity or someone uh, on social media for expressing an opinion, whether political or not. Yeah. Like, yes, you are an entertainer, but you're allowed to have an opinion. Um, you're, you're allowed to talk about Palestine if you want. You're, you're allowed to post something you believe in on your social media and not have people bash you for, for having that opinion. The whole concept behind PC culture, the whole concept behind that movement is inclusion. And what you believe in as an entertainer should should be part of that inclusion. And I don't get uh, why people attack people for having opinions. Right. I think, I think we, ha- we, I ho- we hope I gave you a- enough of a challenge today. You did, you did. It was very beautiful. You did. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I really did too. I, di- I didn't expect we'd go to, uh, to these scopes. And I, I absolutely thank you for, for bringing me to, to this place. No, thank you. Thank you for, for reminding what you did today is not only have a conversation with me, but you reminded me of why I do what I do. And you inspired me more to can do the things that I enjoy. And not only that, but you also showed me a way you're a great listener, a great, you know, interviewer. And I wish I was just like you when I did legendary, <laughs> because if I had your skills and asking questions at the time, I would have produced much better episodes. So I definitely learned a lot today. Man, I, I, I almost said the same thing. You, you jumped the, the gun. I was going to say, I hope one day I can become as good as interviewer as you are. Um, you have the mic, whatever message you have, whatever uh, social media you'd like to talk about, a, sh- a coming show. Um, I don't have a have very big platform. I love platform. that. You have the mic, whatever message you share. Um, I will say, man, I feel like I said a lot of things that I, that I believe throughout this episode, you know? Give and us I a call to action. A call to action. I'll just say my, my, my favorite motto that I came up with when I was working on the automotive um, venture. And it, I wrote in my pitch deck, I was looking for a motto for my automotive company. And I wrote, dare to defy the common. Because at the time, there were a lot of common automotive companies. And I was like, we have to dare to defy. And I think dare to defy in general is important because if you're in a situation where your society is inflicting an, a life that you don't want for yourself, then dare to defy that society. Mm-hmm. If you're in a job that you hate, then dare to defy the job that you hate. Dare to defy yourself, whatever limitations you put up on yourself. And so I think that would be my, my, great, my message to everyone is that if, if, I can die, if I would die tomorrow, and 
people can remember this interview or anything that I've worked on as something is there to defy anything that you feel is stopping you from doing exactly what it is that you, from living the life that you want to design for yourself and for making the mistakes you feel like you want to make, mm-hmm. you know, and that's very important. And I, and I, you know, Aziz, like, like you talked about how hard was it for me to move to the States? It was really difficult. And to this day, and in this week, exactly, I'm going through a harder time than I had when I first moved back here in 2016, because, you know, immigration, everything that's happening, and we've read the news, and my green card fell through, etc. And it doesn't matter. But it's been such a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful journey. And I wouldn't change it for anything else. And it all started because of that sentence, dare to defy. And whenever I feel like giving up, I remember that. And I'm like, no, dare to defy even yourself, your own limitations and the things that you feel are going to hold you back. Comfort zones are dangerous. If you have the luxury to get out of the comfort zone, please do. Even if it's for a year or two, you're going to learn so much. You're going to come back to me and be like, I wish I did that before. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? But um, life is a gray area that we can keep finding quotes and metaphors for, you know, just, I guess, get to know yourself. If you function from the heart, not from the mind, then follow your heart. Don't question it too much. And if you're very rational, then accept that too. Do exactly what you feel your natural inclination. And you'll find a lot of things just become true and easier. You know, we, 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 we circled around a few things, but I don't know. Maybe if you ask me tomorrow, I'll have a different answer, but I guess dare to defy the common. I would say the F word, but I'll use unstuck yourself. Um, <laughs> And um, future shows, we've talked about a few things about Kuwait, November, December. I know there's a few talks happening about Gulf shows. Um, It's going to be called, so far it was Take My Camel because I was going to talk about the influence of the Arabs and Muslims on on the Western Hemisphere, but it's called um, Conflicted. So conflict and then in parentheses, so conflict education. And it's going to be talk, you know, my my new special is going to be about me, you know, growing up in a divorce, working as a mediator, and the issues that I'm facing on a day-to-day um, basis, and then the issue of the Palestinian Israel, the future of this world and the injustice. So that's what's coming up. Um, the best way to know what's happening is to follow me on Instagram or go to my website. And um, you know, that's it. We'll have a link to your Instagram and your website uh, below in our website. Check awesome. underneath the podcast. Um, I have nothing but gratitude for you, Sad. You gave, Thank you, me, uh, you gave me a philosophy lesson today and I, I really appreciate it. We both gave each other something to, to work with. Um, I hope to have many more conversations with you. Uh, whether uh, I'd love to as well. Yeah, on, on mic, off mic. And I, I just, I just want to tell you, just keep doing what you're doing and you're an inspiration for myself and many. I, Thank I wish you. I wish you the best of luck. Ola. In the process of inspiring you, you inspired me. So thank you for reminding me of everything. And let me know how I can promote this episode the best way possible. And if you want me to share anything, I'm happy. For the listeners, I I, I usually like to end this with, I hope you have an amazing day ahead. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, you know what to do with the comments, the likes. Um, I hope you have an awesome day. For the listeners, I'm going to interrupt you. For the listeners. Aziz is doing something beautiful. So if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know if I should hit a thumbs up or comment, you should, because this is beautiful. And he's only helping um, curate a better culture and and society for all of us. So whether you learn from this episode or not, you just spent time listening to it. So you might as well support him and help him achieve what he wants to achieve. Because in return, we all grow by helping others and not, you know, focusing on ourselves. So don't be selfish. A like and a comment is free. 
And um, that's what I'll say for you. And that's you, it. Are, you are awesome, my friend. And also, also, once you're done listening to this episode, go on YouTube, type Unconventionally Arab or Sadalessa and watch that special. Hit a thumbs up, comment, and don't be shy. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Comment and... Be probably, supportive. Be nice. Uh, spam sad on his socials. Just spam, spam my socials. <laughs> uh, thank you so much. And Habibi, Aziz. Thank I, you I, so much. I'll end it with spam sad socials. <laughs> and Aziz's as well. <laughs> yeah, okay. See you guys. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you.